0: Larry, good seeing you again, man. Thanks so much for meeting me. You know, I appreciate you spending time with me, me, me being able to spend time with you. And um, although there's stuff going in the background, we're going to ignore it and act like it doesn't even exist. Because we're in a, in a shop, a coffee shop, and we're hanging out talking about life. And so, Larry, thanks so much for, for meeting me again. And uh, I know that you've been telling me some things that have been kind of just wearing on your heart. And you know, a lot of things in this world are broken, and I, I hurt for you, and I'm glad I can pray for you, but I'd like to do something if I could. Can I show you a picture of something that changed my life forever? Would that be okay? Yes, sir. Excellent. Well, thanks. This is an imaginary napkin that I have here, too, When I want to show it with you. See, Larry, it starts off with this. Just like some some stuff you were telling me earlier. You know, we do have a lot of hurts in our life. And honestly, everybody has hurts in their life. It's because of the world that we live in. And really, the world that we live in is a broken world. And right here is where we live, where we all seem to live. This world is a world full of brokenness. I'll show this little crack right here on the world. You know? That's not God's plan for you, Larry. It's not God's plan for me. God actually has a different plan. And His plan is right here in this circle on the left. It's God's perfect design. See, this is God's design. But as we were talking about, unfortunately, we live in this world of brokenness. And here's how we came to be in this world. This right here, this arrow pointing over from God's perfect plan to the brokenness. We're going to label that sin. Unfortunately, all of us land in this world of brokenness. It's because of the sin that we commit and that we do. I know sin sounds like a big word, but really it just means doing something apart from God's perfect design. God's perfect plan. And that puts us and everyone on this earth in that world. Now you and I both know that people try to escape from this world. They try to think that, that things will get better. So what they do, they try to leave this world of brokenness, this arrow out, and they, they do education. They try to educate themselves. They try to get a bunch of money. They try to earn earn a bunch of money. They try to seek pleasure in different areas, you know, in different areas of their life. And some people, some people even just try to escape from the world just by drugs, by doing some just evil things by drugs. But what happens is when they try to do this, when maybe you or me or other people try to do it, they end up returning to the world of brokenness that they were in. So There's no way to escape from it. Unfortunately, in this world of brokenness, we're all going to die. But again, that's not God's perfect design. He made a way for us to get out of this world of brokenness. And that's this circle at the bottom right here. And that circle is the good news. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Jesus came. God sent him down on this earth to live in this world of brokenness, just like us, but be without sin. And when he did this, he chose To do something immense for us. This arrow down is him coming to earth. He chose to lay his life down on the cross. Taking our world of brokenness and taking our sin upon himself. It would be really sad if it just ended there, but it didn't. Because on the third day, he rose. He rose again. And he defeated sin and this world of brokenness. So what we need to do is we need to turn to him, instead of returning to this world of brokenness, we need to turn to him. The, what the Bible says in, in in turning is the word called repent. And repent's just going one one direction, and then realizing you need to go the exact opposite direction. So you're walking one way and you turn and walk the other. That's what the word repent means: turn from one way to another. The Bible, actually in the book of Mark, Jesus says that we need to repent and believe, and that's the second thing. We need to believe. We need to believe on Jesus. And if we do that, something amazing happens. We go from this world of brokenness. We believe on Jesus. And this arrow right here turns us to this circle. The God's perfect design. We can be changed from the world of brokenness into God's perfect design. But the Bible calls us to grow in that relationship. To learn exactly what it means to live in God's perfect design. So... Also, not only grow, but also to go, to go back into the world of brokenness. So, here's the thing, Larry. There's two types of people in this world. People that live in God's perfect design and people that live in brokenness. So, Larry, my question is, where do you live? Do you live in God's perfect design or do you live in God's brokenness? Maybe you live in God's brokenness. Wouldn't you like to live in God's perfect design? Yes. Can I show you how to do it simply? Yeah. A, B, C. Just admit. Admit that you live in this world of brokenness and you need Jesus. B, believe. Believe on Jesus. Romans 10 says, believe on Him and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And you'll be saved. And lastly, it says this, to call. ABC, call. All you need to do is talk to God. Tell Him these things. And then your relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus, can grow. Would you like to do that right now? Yes. Let's pray. All right. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it.
1: What we're trying to do is to help you know how to share Christ. Got it, guys? Okay. How to share Christ in a real way. I remember the first time that my wife and I served in a ministry back when we were like 22 years old, just a child, right? Wow, that's been 25 years ago. Man, some of y'all are getting old. So we were serving in this ministry and we really didn't have any kind of training, didn't have any preparation. We just were thrown in with this group of kids and we were to point them to Jesus Christ and his word. And it quickly became evident that this one little girl was very interested in putting her trust in Jesus. And I remember the two of us just not really sure what to do, how to proceed. And I remember we were there talking to her and we said, so um, uh, are, you a, are you a Christian? And she said, yeah. We were like, Oh, okay, and walked away. We, we didn't know how to respond. We didn't know what to do. What a, what a horrible opening. Are you a Christian? What American's not going to say yes to that question? What does that even mean? So a lot of us, we're very limited because we, we recognize that we need to know how to share Christ, but we don't know how to do it. We feel very limited because we don't really have, you know, there are other things we, we know how to talk about, football or, or shopping or, or whatever, but how do I share Christ in a way that makes sense? So if you're wondering, if you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, didn't Billy just do that last week and now he did it again this week? Yeah, that's on purpose. Because we want to show you how you can share Christ with somebody sitting at a restaurant, on a napkin, sitting at your house, at the table, on a piece of paper, whatever. You need to know how to share Jesus in a real way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And God, I do pray that you would just speak to us from your word right now as we open it up and see where you trained your followers to be fishers of men. Help us to know what that means. Help us respond. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. So, if you're just joining us today, we're in a small series in the Gospel of Mark, and our theme is that Jesus has called us to be fishers of men. Now, understand that when Jesus said that, those words meant something to those he was talking to. They were fishermen. This is right on the Sea of Galilee, and these guys understood fishing terms. So maybe in our culture, Jesus might have used a different, series, different set of words, but for them, he said, we are to be fishers of men. This was Jesus, a real person now, talking to real fishermen. And what we're doing as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, just the first two chapters, is we're seeing the lessons that he's teaching them, the lessons that he wants them to learn. So let's read together. I'm going to start at verse number 21. And let's just read on through verse number 34. Here's what it says. And they went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, one of my goals in talking through this section of Scripture, one of the many goals I have for us is for us to understand that Jesus is a real person. He's a real person. This is not the figment of our imagination. It's not a, it's not a fairy tale. It's not that, that you know, secret admir- that admirer we have in the sky. You hear all these sarcastic things said, particularly on Twitter, about us who are followers of Jesus as if he's just some idea or, or something that we've created to bring us comfort. Listen, Jesus really lived. He really died. He really rose again. If you question that today, I urge you to research it. Not just the Gospels, although go there, but spend some time, as many other people have done, and look into the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is A real man who really lived. And he called to him followers. And he is now where we're at in this passage. He is now teaching them to be fishers of men. Last week we saw his first lesson. Today we're going to go to the second one. One that we have to realize about this passage of scripture. I know it's only the second page of the gospel of Mark. Okay, We're 14 verses in to Mark in Mark 1.14. So it might seem like we're at the very beginning, but we aren't. We are not. Different men wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The way that the Spirit of God moved Mark to write, he spent the first 13 verses on a year and a half of Jesus' time on earth. That is his ministry, I mean to say. Jesus started his ministry at about 30 years of age, really living, Really interacting, really eating food, really walking, really, really having friends. For about a year and a half, he spent that time. Mark picks up in verse number 14, after that year and a half of time has gone by. So this is a real place. I've got a map here for you that, that'll just help you understand that it's real. It's real. Jesus was down in Jerusalem, down in the south, but is rejected there. So then he moved north. He went to Nazareth. That's where he grew up. Was rejected there. So then he moved to Capernaum. Now one thing you need to know about Capernaum. is It is probably the main city of the whole Galilee region. It was, it was a, a major thoroughfare for, for several different industries of that day. The fishing industry. The, there were roads that went right through the city of Capernaum. So it brought people to that region. There was a, there was a military facility there. There was a tax-collecting office there in Capernaum. This is a real major city of Galilee. And Jesus moved to Capernaum. As a matter of fact, look at Mark chapter 2. Just leave the map there. Look at Mark chapter 2, okay? Verse number 1. Look what it says here. And when he, being Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days, so he'd been away. It was reported that he was, what's it say there? At home. Jesus had a home. He's a real person, you guys. I think we get this idea that Jesus and the disciples were like these, you know, ghost Almost like just floating around a couple of feet off the, off the ground, you know, like, like these eerie little monsters, you know, that, that are just floating around doing all these magical acts. Listen, Jesus is a real person who lived a real life. Hebrews 2 said that he was made just like us, just like the children of Abraham. He had to be made like us so that he can understand. What it means to be tempted. He can understand what it means to be tired. What it means to be heartbroken. What it means to grieve. What it means to laugh. What it means to have friends. What it means to have friends and relations and acquaintances who have rejected him. And that's our lesson for today. That's our lesson for today got a quote here for you from Charles Spurgeon, a, a pastor in England in the early, in the mid 1800s. I need it on the screen because I don't have it memorized. Um, here's what it says. There you go. When you go through a trial, Spurgeon says, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Now Jesus is calling us to be fishers of men. That means He's calling us and equipping us and enabling us to share the gospel in a real way so that people respond and are saved. Now, some of us have been walking with Christ for a long time, and I know what happens because I fight against this myself. I know what some of you feel. Some of you feel like, well, you don't know the people I interact with. You don't know the friends I have at work. You don't know my family. You don't know how these people are that I'm with. And some people think there's no way that so and so would ever respond to the gospel. And so we give up hope. We give up hope. This person is unreachable. They'll never respond to the gospel. And then in our cynicism, in our lack of faith, we start believing that no one will respond to the gospel. And so we aren't a fisher of men at that point. We're just living in the aquarium. We aren't really, we aren't really being prepared or, or respond to the preparation to share Christ because we've given up hope. What we need to see in this passage is the truth that the only hope that man has is Jesus. The only hope that man has is Christ. Look at these two verses. These are both from the book of 2 Timothy. Now, Paul wrote these to a pastor who was discouraged. Okay? This is probably 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is already ascended to be with God in heaven. And Paul, the apostle, set up pastors in communities. And one of Paul's disciples was a young man named Timothy. Now, he's not a teenager. He's probably about my age. And he's grown discouraged. He's he's gotten to the point where he is starting to believe that no one can respond to the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage him. And I want to just use it to encourage you to not give up hope. Don't give up hope. Believe that God can work. Okay, the first verse is in 2 Timothy 2.10. Look what Paul writes. He writes, I endure everything. Now what did Paul endure? Paul endured beatings. Paul endured rejections. Paul endured being shipwrecked. Paul endured being going without food and going without rest and, and all these struggles. He says, I have endured everything for the sake of the elect." That they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See what this means to us. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we're rejected. But we endure that for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect that you endure this for? Those are the people that you know. You know people that God is going to bring them to Himself. You know people who are outside of Christ today. I want you to think of some people right now. You know who are not believers. Got a face? Got a name? Some of those people are God's children in the future. And he's going to draw them to himself. You don't know who they are. They don't have a special mark on their forehead or or anything like that. You don't know who they are. But you and I share the gospel for the sake of those who will respond. And then Paul says just a few verses later in that same chapter, he prays that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Somebody said this. Somebody said that it takes the average person, now follow along with me, okay? Here comes some math, okay? You ready? It takes the average person, ready? 6.58 times that they hear the gospel before they respond. 6.58 times hearing the gospel before they respond. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, that means this. They hear it once and they say no. They hear it again and they say no. Again, no. Again, no. Again, no. Again, no. "No." Six times. But then somebody stumbles along their path and starts to share the gospel and they get through 0.58 times. And the person says you don't want to go any further. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Now, that's a little bit of a twist on the numbers. I understand that. But I want you to have hope. Don't give up hope. Nobody's unreachable. Nobody's unreachable. Keep sharing Christ. Let's see the lesson that Jesus had back in the Gospel of Mark, okay? So the main point for today is Jesus is the only hope. That's our main point today. The power of the Gospel is in the authority of Jesus. That's where the power of the Gospel rests, in the authority of Jesus. And so we see that here in verses 21 and 22. Let me read it again. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So you see what happens here? Jesus goes into, the, into Capernaum, into the synagogue. And they bring him up front because he's a visiting rabbi. See, that's how it worked in that culture. If you're a rabbi and you come into the synagogue and they know that you're a rabbi, they invite you then to come up front and read scripture and explain it. So that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, if you turn over into the gospel of Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew, go to chapter four of Matthew, and we'll see what it is that Jesus taught. Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter four, look at verse number 23, 423. This is a parallel account, meaning Matthew is also explaining what happened in the life of Jesus. So so Matthew is explaining the exact same scenario, the exact same situation that Mark did in chapter one. But here's what Matthew says. He adds one more little fact. Says he went through all Galilee, teaching their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus taught. He taught the gospel of the kingdom. If you want to see what that looks like, go over another passage, okay? Go to Luke chapter 24 with me. Go to Luke chapter 24. I want you to see what it is that Jesus taught. What did Jesus teach to those that he was sharing with? Luke chapter 24. Listen to all those pages. Luke chapter 24. Look at verse number 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 32, watch what happens. Look what the authority of Jesus looks like. Look what happens when God is working in someone's heart. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to while he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures to us? Turn over to page 44. I'm sorry, verse 44. <laughs> not page Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What do I I wanna see? What are we gonna see today? That the authority that comes with the gospel is found in Jesus' teaching. It's him teaching It's us explaining what Jesus taught. That's all we need to do. All we need to do is bring people to what Jesus had to say, what the Bible says about him. I don't have to convince anybody to respond to the gospel. This is a fine tool. This is a fine tool. But it's not necessary. When I got saved, nobody drew that picture for me. Okay? Nobody drew that when I got saved. But my salvation still worked, right? All that needs to happen is we need to be pointed to Jesus Christ and His Word. All you need to do in the world that you're in is take people and point them to Jesus and His Word. Just like Jesus did. Just like the rest of the the biblical people did, the biblical authors, the the prophets of the Old Testament, the same thing. They're all pointing to Christ. That's where the authority resides. Not in your personality. Not in the gimmicks that you can come up with. Not in the jokes that you tell. Not in the power of who you are. Not in the quick tongue that you have. That's not it, folks. Folks. Listen to what God says about himself. In First Corinthians chapter one, God says he uses the weak things of the world. The things that are not, he uses. The weak things to confound the wise. Feel weak? Feel like you don't know what to say? Feel like you're not sure what you would say to somebody if they ask you how they can be saved? Feel that way? Okay. Prepare yourself, but then lean on the authority of Christ and His teaching. Now go back to our passage. Go back to Mark. Mark chapter one. Jump in with me at verse number twenty three. Mark one twenty three and immediately now this is a term that mark uses a lot as you've already seen in our reading we're, we're we're getting the idea that this is a this is this this night was a night of activity for jesus they're going from one place to another to another okay and immediately now in verse number 23 there was in this in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out to jesus what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the Holy One of God. Now the Hollywood movies would, would make us believe that this person's head would spin around in a circle, right? And they'd talk with some low guttural voice and, you know, projectile vomit and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know the state of this person. Later on, Jesus is going to bump into a guy we call the Sands demoniac. This guy who, was, who had hundreds of demons in him and, and he was running around in the tombs, cutting himself with stones and crying out in pain. But Jesus bumps into this demon-possessed man and we are now gonna see the authority of Jesus' power. And he cast out this demon. In verse 25, he says, Be silent and come out of him and the unclean the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out a loud voice came out and they were all amazed now let's talk about demons for just a little bit okay just to take a little bit of a side track here and talk about demon activity first of all i am not aware of any old testament example of demon possession now there are, there are there is a spirit world that's referenced in the old testament but I am not aware of one Old Testament demon possession. Neither do you find any demon possessions referenced in any of the post-gospel books of your Bible. What happened was the, the, the demonic world, the satanic world knew that Christ was on the earth. And the demon activity ratcheted up like crazy when Jesus' earthly ministry was going on. Once Jesus was gone, it's never referenced again in your your epistles. It's never referenced. So there's no Old Testament demon possession. There's no no examples of demon possession that are going on in in the church age after the Gospels. But during this time, the demonic activity ratcheted way up. Second only, by the way, to what the book of Revelation describes as the world gets ready for Jesus' second coming. You guys, Jesus is a real man, but he's really God. And when he came to earth, Satan and all of his foes ratcheted up their game 100%. So this is not about, this this passage is not teaching us how to handle exorcisms, okay? If you're here today wanting to take notes for how to cast out demons, you're in the wrong place. That's not what this is about. So what are we supposed to see here? If the epistles give us no explanation of demonic possession, if the Old Testament gives us no examples of demonic possession, what are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see the authority of Jesus' power. That Jesus alone is able to save. That there is no force strong enough to hold Jesus back. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. The authority of Jesus' power is him. And when we share Christ, when we walk through this picture on a napkin you need to know the only authority is as you point to Christ and he works you don't save anybody you don't convince anybody if you convince someone to get saved quite honestly they're probably not even saved you realize that right This is a supernatural act that happens in a person's heart. All we do is point him to Jesus in his word and allow his power to do his work. So what's the power for us today? Let me give you two references. I think these are on your worship notes. Matthew 5, 16. Hear it. And this is Jesus talking. He says, in the same way, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is the power behind the gospel. As we point to him and his words, his power will be displayed. But what we see here is, and at several places in Scripture is this truth: that our lives, submitted to Christ, bring a willingness to respond to the gospel. Here how oh, Peter says it. First Peter 2: 11 and 12. Peter writes, "Beloved, I urge you." As aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, hear this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil do- doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your life shines light on the gospel of Christ. So let that shine. Let your life shine and then point to him. Now, I'm no different than any of you. Let's just talk real for a little bit. When I'm in a situation where I know I'm gonna get an opportunity to share the gospel... You know, there, if, if you allow God to use you, if you allow God to, to bring you to the situation, you can feel it coming. You ever been there? You're in a conversation? And I know from what this person is saying that I can share Christ with them. I can share the gospel. I know it. And I start listening. I mean, my antenna go up, and I'm looking for a place to, to, to jump in. To share him. Now I wanted to speak to what's going on in my heart at that moment. I start to get nervous. I start to get butterflies. Okay? I start to perspire. I can feel myself getting hot. I, I'm just like, oh, I'm nervous. I, I do not think that this is the work of professionals. Do not think that this is, this is the work of, of some you know, holy priest that does this. The plan of God, the plan of Jesus, was to take ordinary fishermen. These are guys working on a boat. These are dock workers. They throw a net and pull it in for a living now That's what they do. They gut fish for a living. That's who they are. And Jesus uses them to spread the gospel literally around the world. Yeah, I get nervous. Yes, I do. Every every single time. Every single time I look in my flesh I look for a way to get out. I do. I find myself thinking, I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to do this. I'm afraid. But I step out by faith and communicate the gospel the best way I know how. Now, let's let's think about the ultimate authority that Jesus has. Continuing down here, let's let's walk through the rest of our passage. So the spirit comes out. Okay, in verse twenty-seven, they were all amazed. Everybody there, they questioned among themselves, and they said, "What is this?" And notice the two things that they point to. I find this very interesting. I mean, if 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 Hollywood depicted this, they'd be talking about this. You know, this person that the demon was cast out of. That'd be the first thing you talk about. But not of that day. What is this? A new teaching with authority? There's there's an expectation here? There's there's a reliance? There's an understanding that this is from God? And then even the spirits, the unclean spirits, they obey him. verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now Josephus, A historian, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, that was alive right after this period of time and wrote a history of this region said that there were 200 villages of over 10,000 people in this Galilee region. So that's hundreds of thousands of people that live here. You know, we get this picture of like this tent out in the middle of a desert. That's That's not what was going on. Now, I'm not saying there were hundreds of thousands of people breaking down the door to get to Jesus, but there was a mass of people coming. Fame spread everywhere throughout all the region of Galilee. But notice what Jesus does. He left. He left. And he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And there lay Simon's mother-in-law, sick I want you to see here the power of Christ and his gospel is not in mass proclamation it's not in all of us let's gather up as many people as we can and find the best guy we can find or the best gal we can find and put them up front and let them trumpet the gospel it's life on life now It's hand to hand. It's leave the masses and go into this woman's house and show love. You know, I kind of feel sorry for doctors today because every time I go to the doctor, when I get there, I know immediately what's wrong with me, right? And you do the same because after all, I've been researching on the internet for like what? You know, three, four weeks. I've been on WebMD, and I've seen every single symptom, and I am now an expert. And I, it's a very rare disease. It's only one and you know, $500,000 doc, doc but, or 500,000 people, that is, doc, but I got it. I know I've got it. I bet you doctors hate the internet. I bet they're just like, WebMD, curse you. Now, here's why I'm saying that. You don't go to a doctor And tell him what disease you have. It's not what you do. You go to a doctor and you tell him your symptoms. You say, My head hurts, my foot hurts, my back hurts, whatever. He listens to your symptoms and he knows the solution. People around you are displaying the symptoms of brokenness all the time, they're lonely. They're discouraged. They're trapped in sin. They're struggling greatly. And they're telling you their symptoms. They're tell- they come to you. I know that they do. And they tell you their symptoms. My life is a wreck. My family is a wreck. I'm enslaved to this sin. I don't have no hope here. Will someone please find me forgiveness? They're shouting out symptoms to you. Pull off alongside and share the one who knows the solution. They need forgiveness. I love the fact that Jesus leaves the masses here and goes into this home and deals with this woman one on one. Look at it. He comes off the side. Simon's mother-in-law was laying there with a fever. And immediately told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now we don't know everything Jesus said. This is Nowhere does Mark say I'm telling you every single thing that Jesus said. But I have no doubt this woman heard the gospel from Jesus and had responded. No doubt. Maybe in this situation, maybe prior to this, maybe after. But Jesus pulled alongside and met this woman's needs. And as you read through the Gospels, that's what he does over and over and over. Let us do the same. It's what a fisher of men does. It's what a fisher of mankind does. They come alongside and they point to Jesus. Close enough to rub shoulders. Close enough to be friends. The ultimate authority, though, turn with me one more place and then I'll be done. Let me get my reference here. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 38. This is the ultimate authority of Jesus' message. Verse number 38 of Matthew chapter 12. See, what's happening is now, in Matthew chapter 12, we're a little further along in Jesus' ministry. People have seen what he's done. People have seen him cast out demons. They've seen him feed 5,000 people. They've seen blind people see. They've seen lame people walk, all that kind of stuff, okay? Okay. I mean, Jesus here is, has, has been doing all kinds of miracles throughout the land of Jerusalem and, and Judea and up into Galilee. I mean, he, and the world, the, the world in that area knows who he claims to be. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, verse number 38, Matthew chapter 12, they said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, they've been seeing signs literally for two years at this point. But they say, show us another sign. Show us another sign. And Jesus said to them. Now notice what what he says here reveals their heart. He says an evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah Was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's Jesus saying? What's He saying? If you want to know whether Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, if you want to know if God's word is powerful enough, if pointing to Jesus is enough. If you want to know, does he have the power to save? Jesus says, I'll give you one sign. I'll choose one sign. It's not a demon. It's not a blind dude. It's not a lame man. It's Jesus dead in the grave for three days who then gets up and walks out demonstrating his power over death, demonstrating his power over sin, demonstrating his power over Satan, demonstrating his power enough to save you, me, and the people that we know. That's the message we must share. Now, who is it you will share it with? Is there somebody on your mind? Are you willing today, in just a moment, when I pray, Are you willing to pray with me in just a moment that God would give you an actual opportunity to share the gospel that way or another to share the gospel with somebody if he'll open up the door? I told you just two weeks ago, three weeks ago maybe, on a Monday morning, I prayed that God give me an opportunity. And what do you know? Brock and I walk out of McDonald's and there's a guy saying, please tell us the gospel basically. I didn't look for it. God brought it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the authority of your message confirmed in a resurrection, Lord. And Lord, those of us that are in you know the truth of the power of Jesus to forgive and to release from the bondage of sin. And Lord, you have us where we are on purpose. Lord, we are where we are with the people that we're with in the situations that we're in for a reason. And God, you have people that interact with us on a regular basis who need you. Lord, today our hearts are rekindled with a heart to reach them, to point to you, to share your gospel, Lord, in a way that people can understand the simple truth that will radically change their lives. So, Lord, some of us right now are asking you, by faith, that you'll give us an opportunity this week. Give us eyes to see it. And then, Lord, when it's approaching, I pray we'd have the courage to follow through the wisdom to know what to say and how to say it. And then, Lord, the love, the love of Christ that motivates us to share your gospel. So, Father, give us an opportunity. Lord, those that are praying this request from a true heart of faith, give us the joy of seeing your answer.